Good afternoon. My name is Vivian Fisher. I manage the African American Department here at the Central Library. And on behalf of the Board of Directors and Trustees, the CEO, Dr. Carla Hayden, I welcome each and every one of you here this afternoon. Today, it is my pleasure to introduce to you Bob Rogers, who is an author, speaker, and volunteer information technology instructor. Bob is a former Army captain, paratrooper, and combat combat veteran of the Vietnam War, and he was a charter member of Baltimore, Maryland's chapter of the 9th and 10th Horse Cavalry Association. His alma mater is South Carolina State University. He is the author of the historical novel, Will and Dina. He was also an IBMer for 35 year, 33 years, and he is the founder of Global Medical Data in Charlotte, North Carolina. During and after his 30-year Sojourn at IBM, Bob created curricula and taught free computer classes for the young and aged persons on the wrong side of the digital divide. He writes historical fiction and speaks to fulfill his goal of entertaining to educate. His characters are ordinary people, privates, corporals, and sergeants who struggle to live and love through the turmoil of war. He is here today to discuss his latest work, First Dark, A Buffalo Soldier's Story. Please welcome Bob Rogers. Henry Ossian 
Flipper. I am the only colored officer in the United States Army. My unit is Company A, 10th Regiment of United States Cavalry. Until last month, I was the acting commissary of subsistence officer at Fort Davis, Texas. You are present to witness a summary of my trial, which was held in the chapel at Fort Davis. You will hear the prosecution and the defense condense the 606 pages of my trial transcript. Not guilty. Not guilty. Not guilty. Specification third. To wit, in transit to Chief Commissary's obligation for three thousand nine hundred seventy-one. In transit to Chief Commissary's in my possession two hundred thousand nine hundred thirty-four cents and seventy-seven cents. Four thousand eight hundred dollars and eleven cents. False statement made on or about sixteen dollars and twenty-one dollars and cents. This was a false statement. Specification of the twenty-third in my possession. Not guilty. Not guilty. Colonel Pennypacker and officers of the court, I declare to you in the most solemn and impressive manner possible that I am perfectly innocent, perfectly innocent in every manner, shape, or form that I have never myself 
or by another appropriated, converted, or applied to my own use a single dollar, not even a single penny of the money of the government, or permitted it to be done, or authorized any meddling with it, whatever, of crime, I am not guilty. My chief witness was the accuser, Colonel Shafter. He established that he inspected and signed the commissary statements every week. <laughs> to strengthen the government's case, I subpoenaed the department commissary officer, Major Michael P. Small, who established that the June and July funds were not received at his office in San Antonio, demonstrating negligence on the part of Lieutenant Flipper. Well, I must remind you, though Major Small's testimony was immaterial, he also testified that in climates Lieutenant Flipper performed his duties well. Your next witness, John Withers of the San Antonio National Bank, didn't help rescue your case either. Mr. Withers let the court know that he had told Colonel Shafter that though Lieutenant Flipper did not have an account, the bank had received a certificate of deposit from his publisher for $74. $74. had I any reason to question the honesty of any of the persons about my house as I had never missed anything that attracted my attention. And when the officers searched that trunk and failed to find the funds that I had placed there just three days before, I was perfectly astounded. I could hardly believe the evidence of my own senses. Now as to where that money went or who took it, I am totally ignorant. The government rests. Yes, even his watch and West Point class ring were taken. Willoughby did his best to convince the court that Flipper planned to go to Mexico that night. However, 
Thurber's orderly, Walter David Cox, who saddled his horse that evening, testified that Cooper always rode with his saddlebags attached, even when they were empty. The bags were empty ten August. All local merchants who gave money to help Flipper make up the shortfall also testified to his good character and standing in the town adjacent to the fort. The court heard a town attorney testify that he overheard Shafter remark he was piling it up on Flipper. He was piling it up on Flipper. Former Fort Davis commander, Major N.B. McLaughlin, reported Flipper's character as outstanding and praised his performance as a soldier. Flipper's regimental commander, Colonel Benjamin Grierson, sent a letter citing specific accomplishments during Flipper's four years in the 10th Cavalry. Grierson included remarks of praise for Flipper from two officers with whom Flipper had served. General John W. Davidson and Captain Nicholas M. Nolan. As to my motives, in the matter alleged in the first specification of the second charge, I can only say that sometime before I had been cautioned that the commanding officer would improve any opportunity to get me in trouble. And although I did not give it much credit at the time, it occurred to me very prominently when I found myself in difficulty. And as he had been long known to me by reputation and by observation as a severe, stern man, I indulged in what proved to be a false hope that I could be able to work out my difficulties, my responsibilities alone and avoid giving him any knowledge of my embarrassment. Gentlemen, the government's case proves embezzlement. You heard testimony, not refuted by the defense, that the accused lied to his commanding officer and sent a false report to San Antonio. So, I ask you, what reason do we have to believe that he ever placed the money in the trunk in the first place? The accused, like his female servant, Lucy, is ignorant of what became of the funds he claimed to have had in an envelope, which was by him deposited in the household trunk. And yet, gentlemen, according to the statement of the accused and his servant, they were the only persons who had access to that trunk or possessed the keys of the same up to the time the accused was seated near that trunk when the search commenced on August 13. Strange ignorance indeed. Under the Articles of War, the prosecution has made a prima facie case for embezzlement. It was not the government's responsibility to show how the accused disposed of the funds.
of the 10th Regiment of U.S. Cavalry to be dismissed from the service of the United States. The court is adjourned. 7 December 1881. Had Colonel Shafter not been erroneously convinced of my, that I embezzled commissary funds, he could have used administrative measures to punish me. In the form as an example of a reprimand or extra duty. The court could have mitigated my sentence to time served or suspended me from duty for some number of months. Just five years before my trial, a precedent of interest was established. In 1876, an Army paymaster by the name of Major Reese was convicted in New York of the same two charges as mine, embezzlement and conduct unbecoming an officer. Major Reese overdrew his government account for two years in the amount of $10,000. His sentence? A mere four-month suspension from duty. In February 1978, I was granted an honorable discharge. In February 1999, I received a full pardon in the case of the United States versus Lieutenant Henry O. Flipper from President William J. Clinton. Of equal importance to me was the fact that when my brother completed the occupation line on my death certificate in 1940, my brother entered these three words, retired Army officer.
questions would be how much uh, how much was that three thousand that missing three thousand seven hundred ninety one dollars and seventy seven cents mean in today's money? Think about, think about the questions too. <laughs> My favorite part in all of this is Q and A. Okay, now I can smile. I don't have to be the Dow Lieutenant uh, on trial for his uh, career. Now, to tell you about what happens after intermission, when I return, we play a game. We play Jeopardy. <laughs> yes, it's time for your American history quiz, especially specializing on the 19th century. Oh, and part three, if you will, reading and scenes from First Star, a Buffalo Soldier's story. Okay, so that's next. <laughs> Be right back. Okay. True. 
Was he the first or second president to serve in the United States Senate after his presidency? He was the second. Who was the first? These are just bonus questions. I'm trying to John Quincy Adams. Yes! I got that one right. All right! Go ahead and give him a red card, please. Thank you, Teresa. Oh, okay. So he was president and then to serve the Senate. That is correct. Yes, yes, Vice President, President, then the Senate. Yes. Back what she said. Okay, this former Civil War Quartermaster General of New York conducted the final review of Lieutenant Clipper's trial. This must be a middleweight question, right? Gold prize. Oh, by the way, you will not be penalized for guessing. <laughs> All right, Luke. Who is General Lee? No. Grant? No. Jack Pershing? No. Pershing was a Okay. Clue for officers court martial the, um, the uh, last reviews done by the President of the United States. Even for a second lieutenant. Okay. Well, back then, I'm not going to tell you about it today. Why? I don't know. 19th century? I read it. Okay. Not that I remember. <laughs> okay. The trial of this murderer in the summer of 1881 diminished the national media's cover coverage of Lieutenant Flipper's trial. I got it. Yes. Um, I got the name. The guy that killed Barkley. That's close enough. <laughs> French name. French name, yes. You're even closer. Charles J. Guiteau. Wow. Even his family knew that he was nuts. They tried to get him locked up long before he assassinated the president. But no, he escaped. And you know the story behind, uh, you know the story about why he died? Garfield lived for uh, a couple months or a month there. 80 days. They kept, the doctor did not wash their hands. Mm -hmm. into his body. Yes, and with their dirty, grubby fingers. He died from that body. Right. There was still this, this uh, uh, um, uh, the majority of physicians in those days didn't wash their hands. Okay, it was a slow progress, slowly, but surely progress was being made about sanitation. So during that same period, you have people that were saying, wait a minute, we can't do this, we have to be clean, we have to sterilize instruments, et cetera, et cetera. And then there was the majority that were going, well, you, I don't know what you're talking about. Right. Yeah, resistance to change. You know, that, you know, that started um, pretty much during the, uh, civil, during the uh, Civil War where you just had a few doctors that would say, you know, this is not right, we need to, we need to be clean, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Oh, and by the way, uh, in First Dark, uh, you will be introduced to a doctor whose name is Sanchez, whose name is Sanchez, or was Sanchez, and uh, he was one of those few. So you will see him uh, in action with his assistant, dig uh, uh, bullets out of uh, bad guys that were shot up in whatever arguments back and forth. Uh, good answer there. Yes, sir. And they also said, I'm sorry, just like this. Also, um, probably one of the most talented presidents ever could have been elected because he was really intelligent and he had all these uh, abilities. He was one of the most potentially great brothers we ever had. Well, that, that, that may be the case. Uh, Chester A. Alpha was no slouch himself. 
Uh, and an upstanding man with, uh, with an impeccable track record as far as uh, corruption at the public trough is concerned. By the way, who was uh, Garfield's uh, Secretary of War? Robert Todd Lincoln. As the president and son of the former president. Yes, sir. Robert um, Garfield, it was a U.S. Marshal, a black U.S. Marshal, that attacked the guy that shot Garfield. Oh, uh, yes, he was grabbed right away. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, but I did not know that that man was black. Okay, next question. In the summer of 1880, Lieutenant Lippin's 10th Cavalry saw action against this Native American chief, sometimes called America's greatest guerrilla fighter. For a platinum prize, Luke. Who is uh, Geronimo? No. <laughs> yes, sir. I'm sorry, who was crazy horse? No. She cares. Give me the G. No, did we give it a G? No. 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 Yes, sir. Would be now? No. Very close. Very close. In fact, they were in-laws. Copyright for 
Maple Leaf Riot and became known as the King of Wow, all these hands. here with you. I don't think I need the mic either. You can hear me okay over there, can't you? Alleged that uh, the the uh, that was a hoax in terms of uh, the mistreatment of Henry Flipper. I don't know if that was covered earlier. No, uh, where where did that come from, and who originated it, and what is the controversy? Great question. Uh, uh, no, I did not talk about that uh, earlier, hoping that we would have a lively discussion here. And yes, the question that he raised did come from uh, some of the matter that I put on Facebook during the, during the course of the week, uh, last week. Uh, the controversy about Lieutenant Flipper's treatment uh, arose in uh, the 21st century. Now, um, I hope I get these years right, but it's somewhere around 2003, 2004, then again in 2009. And the, these issues were raised in three books, three recent books, 21st century books. Um, one, a correction, two of the three books by the same man. Uh, his name is Charles Robinson III. So you can look him up, check him out. And the titles of his uh, books, um, one, the trial of uh, Lieutenant Flipper. The second one um, was uh, the downfall of um, uh, a black army officer. I'm not sure I got all of that right, but those are the basic words in the title. And what he alleges is uh, that um, the court-martial panel, you saw their names, you saw all of the people that were part of that court, uh, the lowest-ranking person was a first lieutenant that no one, lower, no one equal to Flipper's rank or lower, all the way up to colonel. Uh, and these folk um, uh, sat on that, uh, on, on that board over a period of three months, 30 days' worth of testimony. So this was a major trial, and it did receive national attention, although it was drowned out by the trial of Charles Guiteau. There's in the, you, the thing that some of you may have missed is that in the introduction, I told you that there were 606 pages in the trial transcript. So, we, yes, we, this is a major trial. All right, uh, even though I condensed it to 20 minutes. <laughs> now, what, um, what uh, Robinson 
and the other fellow whose last name is kind of Spanish and I can't remember how to pronounce it, said is that the court-martial could not have found otherwise because of the way the Articles of War, which preceded the um, Uniform Code of Military Justice, was written at the time. So in the case of the second charge, which was conduct unbecoming an officer, with its five specifications, um, the... um, did he, act, did he lie or not lie? Did he submit a false report or not submit a false report? So the writer's contention is that if you were on that court-martial board, you were a member of that court, and that's the way it was written at that time, that you had no choice but to say he was guilty. Now, the controversy goes deeper. And this is not to be found in the 606 pages of the trial transcript. All right? I didn't read them myself. However, a reliable person that has read them, I interviewed, and sure enough, that's the uh, business of the backstory as to why one set of officers may want to get rid of Flipper, get him out of the army, is not there. Is not present, was not brought up in the court. And that was about the business of horseback riding on Sunday afternoons uh, with a Caucasian woman. Yes, sir. But the, the contention of all of the discussion is not that he did not attempt to hide the, uh, the shortfall, but that his sentence was uh, out of line with similar crimes. Exactly. And that is, that is why I have written into this play that epilogue that explains that 10 years, no, not 10 years, five years before his trial, another person that had embezzled three times as much and was found guilty of both embezzlement and conduct on becoming an officer simply was suspended for four months without pay and allowed to continue his military career. And in the case of Flipper, just five years later, nope, you out. So even though uh, the... um, the uh, court found him guilty. It was, they were not required to dismiss him from the army. Uh, further, um, the, um, the uh, judge advocate in Washington uh, decided that um, the sentence was too harsh and that it should be reduced. And he recommended saying, the Secretary of War, Lincoln, agreed, took it to the president, but the president in this case, Chester A. Arthur, being this upstanding quartermaster, knew where this was coming from and all of that, all of the rest, and had, uh, what's the word, uh, ruled leniently in the case of Whitaker, the South Carolinian uh, former West Pointer that didn't graduate. John. Yes, yes. John. John, John. Thank you for, sometimes it goes off and doesn't, doesn't work. So, yes, uh, that... that um, uh, that may be one of the reasons, don't know, because uh, uh, the president didn't write it down. He simply said, I affirm the original sentence, or words to that effect, and that was the end of uh, Flipper's career at uh, 30 June 1882. Yes, sir. Um, I once heard a story that uh, Flipper went to Mexico uh, as he was an engineer. Yes. And he went there as a spy. 
Uh, I don't. I, the material that I that have I, I have access to, and my bibliography for, for this is uh, eight or nine books. I forget. I'm not up on the count there. But even in his uh, autobiography, second auto, autobiography, uh, that is not the case. But did you ever hear that story? No, I did not. I, that's the first time I've heard that story. He he reported on what he did. Uh, many other people have followed behind him uh, to uh, write about his life. And, uh, and his career both in the military uh, and as a civil engineer after the war. He did go to Mexico. He did go to Mexico, lived in Mexico for some period, spoke translated, uh, spoke fluent. That's why in the introduction, I greeted you for that morning in English, in Spanish, and in French. Yes, he spoke two languages fluently and, and spoke some French. Yes, so, uh, so yes, he, uh, he did go to uh, Mexico he translated um, land and mining laws from the countries of Mexico and Venezuela uh, for the U.S. government. He was there during the time of the Mexican War. Oh no, 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 no. This is this is much later. Yeah. Okay. Yes, ma'am. Two questions about money. Yes. Number one, what is the equivalent of that that money, the so-called investment money? What would be today's equivalent of it? Okay, the amount was $3,791.77. It would be worth, debt correction, worth in 2011 approximately $86,000. Secondly, did you ever find that money? No. It was never found? No. I knew lived high on the hall, yeah. Somebody did. Okay, oh, great. Okay, we can close the case on uh, Lieutenant Flipper. As reluctantly as I would... Yeah, all right, so um, I had a planned finish time, and I'm working against that deadline, if you will allow me. Okay, uh, any, uh, any questions from uh, the Jeopardy uh, phase? I forgot to ask about that. Any cues in the, the follow-up to the uh, answers and questions that I had in the, in the Jeopardy part of the, uh, of the uh, show this afternoon? Okay, all right, well, onward uh, with uh, readings and scenes. I expect that this will take approximately 15 minutes. All right. Ready? Here we go. Now. All right. So let's go. I suppose you've heard this music before. I'm sorry. Ask again later.
Okay. Now, the way um, I have organized this uh, reading business is uh, by state. So, from the Southland, um, this is the um, antebellum South, about to become postbellum. Uh, and um, these are uh, scenes that I encountered while I did my research uh, for this book over about a 20-year period, beginning in this library, as a matter of fact. So once upon a time, as, uh, as you may have heard, I live in um, Charlotte, North Carolina. But once upon a time, I lived in Columbia, Maryland. All right. So let's go with the first reading from South Carolina. After supper, family and friends sat by the body into the night, singing and praying until time for the funeral to begin in the slave section of the plantation cemetery. Some of the men held torches to light the way. Mark's coffin had already been nailed shut. Aunt Ella and Caleb raised their voices together and led the community in song. Aunt Ella was sometimes accompanied by Caleb's harmonica. Isaac reckoned that there were more than 200 members of the community present. Tom Foster spoke on behalf of the Tiffany family since they had already moved to their Charleston townhouse to avoid the fever season. Uncle Jacob repeated um, words uh, he heard from the Bible uh, from the visiting white Episcopal preacher uh, when he would come out on Sundays and recite. He ended with the 23rd Psalm and a long prayer. Following the internment, with Mark's head facing the east, Members of the community took turns hugging Eve and Isaac while offering their private condolences. After a while, the people made their way back to their streets and their cabins by torchlight. When the final torch was extinguished, Bianca stepped from the shadows, grabbed Isaac's hand, and pulled him from the street. In a shadow, she whispered, I'll never forget what Una did for me and my Andrew last year. Please let me know if there's anything I can do for Una. Anything. Slowly, she turned to face him, toe to toe, in the dim light of a quarter moon. Isaac saw beauty in her eyes and lips. Her smile revealed perfectly even teeth that he had not noticed in all the years since he first met her. She moved closer and laid her head on his chest. She put her arms around Isaac and pulled him tight against her body. Okay, second reading from uh, the South, uh, from South Carolina. They turned and saw two fine black horses in full gallop on the road from Jacksonboro. It was not a runaway. The driver was not trying to slow his charges. He was urging them onward. He was yelling and snapping his lines. The white foam from the mouths of both horses contrasted with their black coats, glossy with sweat. Big Gus said, why, that's Luke. He's running that rig like he's got a bee in his bonnet. Come on, boys, give him room. Big Gus took his bay horse by the halter and led him and his two-wheeled work cart away from the gate. Isaac and Della, uh, Isaac moved Della and the canoe aside. Now they could hear Luke yelling to them, make way, make way. Isaac thought Luke might not clear that turn just before the bridge. Isaac watched with widening eyes as Luke 
hit it without slowing. Luke and the horses leaned in unison into the turn. The buckboard's rear wheels skidded, throwing dirt up from the road. Luke's hat was bouncing on his shoulders in the breeze, pulling the cord taunt that held it around his neck. Sweat glistened on his forehead. The, road, the rear of the little buckboard snapped back in the line behind the horses and clattered across the wooden bridge over the canal and through the gate. Luke, the horses, and the rig soon disappeared down the avenue toward the big house in a cloud of dust. South Carolina. Okay. New Mexico. New Mexico was fun in the research business. Very interesting reception by the Apaches when I showed up writing a book about buffalo soldiers. A little apprehensive, but after a time of human contact, they warmed, and I, and I am still, 20 years later, exchanging Christmas cards with the same Apache curator of their museum. Okay. Agreed. Growing plants is no life for a warrior. But your grandfather made sure everyone packed and brought the, all the hoes and shovels the army issued to us. I guess you know what that means. Grandfather was once a warrior. I don't know. Maybe warriors grow soft when they're old. He thinks we need to stay in one place and be farmers. But why do you think he's changed? I'm not sure, but I think he believes the white eyes are too many for us to defeat. Silence. Ortega loathed the thought that the Mescaleras would become farmers before he became a warrior. The thought made him shiver on the antelope skin upon which he sat. At length, Jorge spoke. What do you believe? Or take a chuckle. I believe I will marry Jacali. Dreamer! Dream on! Oh, but I will. You just watch. That will never happen. Think about it. Next summer, Jacali will have her puberty ceremony. Most likely, her mother will have her wait the usual two years after the ceremony to, walk, to marry. And then the race will begin. With, uh, within two years... The young warriors will fall all over themselves trying to lure such a prize as Jacali. You will be only 18 summers old and have no horses to offer her father. And you won't even be a warrior by then. Jacali will wait for me. Ha! You are a dreamer. What makes you think such a beauty as her would even notice the likes of you? She never even looks my way. And Yusin knows I've tried to catch her eye. Of course she would never notice you. What are you thinking? You have the face of an elk. Okay, let's see. Who else here? Let's go to Mississippi. Okay. That's Rachel up there. A soldier stood on the steps of the cabin. John called Rachel. Rachel lifted her hot supper dish of bacon, collards, 
and cornbread. Let me read that again. She left her hot supper dish of bacon, collards, and cornbread. Standing in the door, she folded her arms under her breast against the chill of the first Tuesday evening in December 1865. Good evening. I'm Rachel. How can I help you? The soldier thrust a a folded handbill toward her. Good evening, ma'am. I was instructed to give this to you. Rachel took the handbill. Thank you. She quickly closed the door and hurried back to her supper. She laid the handbill beside her plate. Ruth spoke while chewing. Ray, uh, what does it say? Rebecca burped. Yeah, what's it about? Rachel did not answer but said, Mmm, Beck, your cooking is the best. She pushed the handbill across the table to Ruth and lifted another forkful of collards to her mouth. Uh Uh-oh. Ruth put one hand on her chest and pushed the handbill back to Rachel. Rebecca raced around the table to have a look at the paper. Ruth, what is it? I can't read very well, but I do know the word Caleb when I see it. His name is on that paper. Curious, Rachel picked it up. She screamed, oh, Lord, no. Here's what the handbill said. Wanted, dead, with dead on the line, or alive, two dangerous, thieving, agitating niggas at Davis Bend, Isaac and Caleb. Reward, $100, United States money. Attorney and Deputy Sheriff, Henry Carter, Utica, Hines County, Mississippi. Scrawled at the bottom of the handbill was the following message. Dear Rachel, please let Isaac and Caleb know soon as you see this. Your friend, Charles DeFox. Okay, second reading from Mississippi. In the evening, Rachel took her supper in bed. John brought a chair and sat next to her. Ray... Becky told me all about it. He paused. Tears welled in his eyes, but did not spill onto his cheeks. Child, I want you to know I'm hurting inside, wishing I could bear your pain for you. Paul, I love you. Thank you. Did Becky tell you I promised to kill that bastard? Now calm yourself, child. I'll be very calm after I kill him. Remember, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Then I'm his willing instrument. All right. Let's go west again. All right. Still in the days of Isaac. 10th Cavalry. Lieutenant Flipper's unit. The next day, Isaac knocked on the office door of Company A's Second Lieutenant George Ralston. Which company was Flipper in? Company A. That's exactly right. Sir, can we talk for a minute? Ralston pushed aside the mail on his desk and said, Sure, Mr. Rice. Come on in. Have a seat. Now, today he would have been addressed as Private Rice. But in those days, no matter officer or not, Men refer to each other as Mr. in the Army. Mm -hmm. 
Okay. Isaac knew he should not feel embarrassed, but he did. Uh, thank you, sir. The matter, plain and simple, is I can't read. Colonel Grierson said he would hire a chaplain to teach us, but I don't reckon he's going to send him way out here to Fort Lorne just for one company. So will you teach me? Fort Lorne, you may have heard on Gunsmoke back in the day when it was on the radio, is in Kansas. Isaac's grin split his face from ear to ear. Now, sir? Uh, yes, this minute. Oops, I'm sorry, I missed the line. Rawson twisted his handlebar mustache from uh, one way, then the other. He gazed at Isaac. Finally, he spoke. I'm game, but I want you to know I'm hesitant because I'm not a teacher and know nothing about where to start. If you don't mind that I don't have a plan, we can start now. Isaac's grin split his, ear from, split his face from ear to ear. Now, sir? Rawson chuckled. Yes, this minute. Oh, oh, wait, I forgot to say. I'll do this only on one condition. Isaac's countenance fell. Yes, sir. You have to agree to help me teach any of your fellow soldiers who want to learn. Isaac's grin was back. Yes, sir. In September, Ralston and Isaac opened their first reading class for a dozen 10th Cavalry soldiers. Okay. Final reading. Still from the West. Now, the guy that you hear in the next part of this reading came from Baltimore. A native of Baltimore joined the 10th Cavalry uh, in Kansas in 1867. This, this uh, particular part of the reading is about two to three years after he joined the unit. After supper the next day, Tom and Isaac emerged from the mess tent with their tin cups filled with steaming coffee. They walked toward the corral. Tom looked about before he spoke. Say, Isaac, what did you think of the chaplain, chaplain's sermon this afternoon? Well, I think he wants us to think what white folk think. Huh? Hey, I see no difference in his message that we are destined to subdue the savages and civilize them than I saw in the sermons that the white preacher from Jackson, Jacksonboro back in South Carolina fed us on the plantation. He told us over and over again slavery was the natural order of things and that God put good white folks on earth to take care of us. Whoa, you mean you don't believe engines are savages? Isaac pointed to an animal feed house in the corner of the corral. Suppose this was your private corral and feed house. So there you are all happy with your arms folded, looking over your stock. Suddenly... I show up with Caleb, Charles, Robert, and Augustus. We tell you we're going to take your corral, but you can stay over there in the corner, or you can die. So you're outnumbered and outgunned. You go talk it over with your one brother. He looks at our guns and says, let's give up and stay over in the corner. You, after you think it over, you decide... Oh, hell no. I'll fight to keep my corral, and we back you into that corner. You know we will keep our word and kill you. Do you fight gently or savagely? Tom stopped and leaned on the corral. He scanned the horses and took a sip of his coffee. 
Isaac, my friend, you have a way with clarity. You know there's no question about what I would do. By any means necessary, any man would fight and struggle to the death. I see your point. Questions? Yes. How did this book come to come into being? Great question. Great question. And timely in that this painting, representation of this painting, is on screen. This rendition was done by an artist historian by the name of Don Stivers. I happened to be on his mailing list in 1991. In November of that year, his flyer arrived announcing this painting, Proud to Serve. It was his second Buffalo Soldier painting. I held that flyer up in the kitchen, opening the mail in the kitchen, and I said aloud, for some reason, this man's story ought to be told. My wife overheard me. She said, why don't you? That is your answer. November 1991. Next. Yes, sir. Did you go back to her original question? Oh, question. I'm sorry. What was your original question? Is this, no, because I think you answered it. Is this a true story? Okay, great question. Uh, yes, I remember your question now. Um, the answer is yes and no, depending on how much of a purist you are. Here's my explanation for that. Now, my answer is, my real answer is, Yes, it's a true story. However, the person, Isaac Rice, I invented. Now, how, why, how and why? What I decided to do after looking at the material and understanding a bit about where our uh, black cavalry troops in the 9th and the 10th were deployed and the infantry, 24th and 25th regiments, I thought, okay, I need a way to tell the story. And I need to tell the story in the fashion that I set out, which is to explain and show. Let you feel a family. So that means then I'm now limited to one person as the leader through this. So I can include his family, his friends, and his enemies, even though he didn't know he was going to meet them on the battlefield some chapters later, right? Okay. But the focus is on him throughout or people he has not met but will meet. Now, to do that, uh, I need to be able to communicate with you, the reader, and tell you a story that, in which you are invested now because you get to meet him, you meet his family, you know who loves him, you know who his sisters are, you know what about his parents, you know how he lost them, et cetera, et cetera, right? So, to follow him... I used over 450 pages of military returns from the field summarizing month by month where they were, what they did, who was there by name. That's how I discovered uh, Tom in the last reading there from Baltimore. His name is Thomas H. Alsop. And as a matter of fact, in 1877, he became a hero because because of the fact that he had the courage to disobey an order that resulted in him saving his company commander and about half the company in the desert. Okay, so, so you see that piece is history, and there are books written about the Buffalo Soldier tragedy of 1877. The way I tell the story, Isaac happens to be there. Why? Because I put him in Company A. Now, somebody over here may say, well, Bob, why did you put him in Company A? Is that because Lieutenant Flipper was in Company A? The answer is no. 
That's because I served in Company A, which is now, which after 1883, is called Troop. Troop A, 10th Cavalry, Vietnam, 1967. So arbitrarily, I did that. <laughs> that's, why, that's why Isaac was in Company A. So then I followed Company A, wherever they went, moving from fort to fort, action to action. Yeah. So when he, when he met uh, Ortega and uh, Jorge in battle, uh, yes, that means that I had tracked and followed using the clues given to me by that uh, Apache Museum, Mescalero Apache Museum curator as to where to find the clues that tell me where they were. Yes. So the yes. individual people made a creation, but the action of, of the whole story is... Yes. So, so, he, so yes, my characters interact with historic figures. As in Colonel Grierson, as an example. You saw a picture of Colonel Grierson on, on, uh, on screen. Uh, of course, Lieutenant Flipper was there. Lieutenant Flipper uh, was um, in that action in 1880 against uh, Chief Victorio. And as that battle unfolded, you see what Lieutenant Flipper did. You see Isaac doing this, that, or the other. Uh, and where did I get that from? I'm looking at what the troops did in Company A during, during that uh, war. Yes. Yes, sir. Um, I was told... Um Especially black soldiers, Buffalo soldiers, they had a very unique way when they would talk to white officers. They would say "sir" a lot. Yes. Um, they would say "yes, sir, Captain, sir." Was that only us? No. Um, no. No. Um, that's. Uh, depending on uh, where you went uh, for basic, uh, or who trained you. Uh, you learn to say that, or you learn to speak that way to, uh, to non-commissioned officers and, and officers, uh, except for the word sir, which they pronounce sir until they learn to read. Um, and uh, it, didn't, it didn't matter. No, that was, that was not something that only uh, black troops did. Right. So, for example, if you see the movie um, uh, A Few Good Men, uh, Tom Cruise and what's-his-face uh, balding in the middle there, getting more and more like me every day. Jack Nicholson, my man, Jack, yes. Okay, you will see that um, the uh, two enlisted men that are on trial uh, in that movie uh, would respond by saying, Sir, no, sir. Yeah, you remember that? Okay, yes. Yeah. So, so, yeah, it is not uh, particular to a race. Anything else? Yes, sir. One more? Just one? Oh, yes. Almost ten. The Buffalo Soldiers, um, um, they had the same job as the, um, as the white soldiers to, um, to make sure the Indians didn't um, go certain... Uh, uh, what was the main, main job of the Buffalo Soldiers? Well, they had several. Um, good question. Uh, one that you, that you know immediately was uh, to, um, to uh, push the Indians aside and keep them on the reservations. Two, keep the, um, the uh, settlers from robbing the Indians of their horses and their livestock, other livestock, sheep, uh, cows, what, so that they had that job, which is not heralded. Uh, two, they built roads. Three, they built forts. Uh, five, they built telegraph lines. Six, they made roads. Uh, seven, and this is a big part in, uh, in First Dark, you'll find out that they were master surveyors and created maps that looked as if if you've seen any of them, uh, someone rode on a helicopter and looked down and made these maps uh, from a topographical point of view. Okay, um, I understand that's last question. Boy, that was fun, huh? <laughs>
All righty. <laughs>